Amen. Okay, we are now in Paul's second letter to Timothy. A great deal of time has passed. Paul is an elderly man at this point, and he, through just the language he uses in this letter, it's obvious that he knows his time on earth is short. The sun is setting on his ministry. The sun is setting on his time as God's faithful servant bringing the message of the gospel. And we know that God's word is inspired by the Spirit of God, but it's written through humans. And there's a very human element to Paul's letter. Because as Paul encourages and exhorts uh, Timothy in this letter, we also see that he struggles with a feeling of abandonment. Because Paul is not writing this letter from the comfort of his home. He's writing from a dark, dingy, cold jail cell in Rome. A cell where probably the only light that he's... He, he receives is the hole in the roof where they lower down food to him. And it's amazing to me that a man who finds himself at the end of his ministry, who has remained faithful to Jesus, has his mind set on the gospel still going forward. Because I know where my mind would be God, I was faithful to you. What am I doing here? Why is my life ending up like this? Why have all my freedoms been taken away from me? God, what have I done wrong? But that's not Paul's mindset. And so as I approached this letter, I asked what happened in Paul's life that he could approach situations like this and still have the mind and heart of Jesus. And still know that he has an important role to play in the lives of others, including uh, this uh, now much older man, Timothy, who he has mentored and trained up and now encourages to continue in the work of the gospel. Paul writes, and I'm sure you're all very familiar with this verse in 2 Timothy 4, he says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, as Paul approaches the finish line, this is the last letter he's ever going to write. And he hasn't taken his eyes off of what is truly important. In chapter 1, we'll see that he is encouraging Timothy to guard the gospel. It's kind of an extension of that first letter to, to guard. He calls it the good deposit that was entrusted to Timothy. And if you remember, that was really the heart of 1 Timothy. Guard the gospel, and we'll see why in his introduction in the letter. In chapter 2, he invites Timothy to suffer for the gospel. That's not a, a popular message this, this, uh, in this current climate, is it? That you will come to Christ, and in this world you will face tribulation. You will suffer. We like to hear what we're going to get if we give our lives to Christ. But that's only part of the gospel. Oh yeah, we're, give, we're given eternal life. We're giving purpose and, and meaning. We're giving the heart of God through His Spirit. But we are also told that we will suffer as we walk with Jesus. 
There is a cost. There is a price to be paid. And Paul invites Timothy, come and suffer with me, just as Christ suffered for us. In chapter 3, he commands Timothy to continue in the gospel, to not lose heart, to keep moving forward. Don't be afraid. And then finally in chapter 4, he charges Timothy, preach the gospel. Shout it out. Let the world know that there is hope in the name of Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul wrote, I charge you there before, therefore before God and the Lord Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and if you've been going to Central for more than 10 minutes, you know that the word apostle, it was a Greek word that was originally used for a cargo ship, carrying cargo from one place to the next, and then it began to mean a messenger or an envoy or a delegate commissioned by another to represent someone in some way. So Paul says, I am, I am simply carrying cargo. I am a messenger. I'm a delegate. I'm a representative. I'm not here to, to make my name known. I am a representative of Jesus Christ. I exist to point people to the person of Jesus who is alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father today. And he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is my purpose. This is God's given purpose to me, and it's my highest calling, Paul says. Now, Paul, just like the other apostles, was commissioned by Christ himself. If you recall in Mark 3.13, this is how Jesus called his, his apostles to him. He said, or we read in 3.13, he went up to the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. You may be here this morning wondering if there's hope, wondering if there's forgiveness for the life that you've lived. And you wonder, how can I be saved? How can I be made right with God? Here's the answer. He called, and they came. You know Christ is calling you. Will you respond? He called and they came. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That's the apostolic call. And then Paul shares. Now, Paul wasn't one of the original 12. We know that. In fact, he was one of the early persecutors of the church. But Paul was called by Christ as well. 
In Acts chapter 26, Paul is recounting his conversion on the road to Damascus. He had letters giving him permission by the, uh, from the Jewish high council to imprison believers. And as he traveled with these letters, Jesus knocked him off his donkey. And Jesus said in verse 16, Rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, that's really his standard greeting in most letters, but then he adds something to this letter, and it means a lot coming from a man who's on death's doorstep. He says, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Guys, this is what's at stake here. As we come together and we fellowship and we study God's word and we sing praises to God, why do we do that? Because Jesus has given us life. Because we were dead in our sins and we were hopelessly lost and Jesus saved us and he gave us life. Not just eternal life, but a life that comes only from abiding in the vine. This is what's at stake for Paul. This was the purpose of his first letter, protect sound doctrine, because there is one road that leads to life. The path to destruction is wide, but there's one road to, that leads to life, and that road is Jesus. And not a Jesus of our making, not a Jesus that fits into our box, not a Jesus that, that is formed into our image and wants the things that we want, but the Jesus of the Scriptures, the Jesus that died and rose again, and He's alive now, beckoning those who are lost to come home. And if we'll simply respond to that call and say, God, I... I no longer want to be God over my own life. I accept your son as my king and my savior. He doesn't simply give us a new belief system. He gives us life. We may not carry the same apostolic authority that Paul does, but our purpose is the same as born-again believers. We are disciples of Jesus. You know, sometimes we talk about discipleship or disciples, and we think that's like a master class in Christianity, that we have regular Christians and then we have disciples, those people that have maybe gone through a discipleship class. But when did the apostles become disciples? After they had been trained? No, the minute Jesus called them and they responded. If you're a born-again believer, you are a disciple of Jesus. And as a disciple, what are we called to do? We are called to be with Him. We are called to become like Him. And then we're called to continue in the work that He is doing in this world. 
That's not just the purpose of, of people who have been walking with Jesus for many years. That is what the reason we live and breathe and, and wake up in the morning. You may be sitting here this morning wondering why life is just the same routine over and over again. Wake up, go to work, watch Netflix, go to sleep, do it all over again. And you're like, man, there's got to be more to life than this. There is. There is no better thing than being with Jesus and then having him impart his desires within us. And then through that, we go out into this world and we allow him to work through us. This is his work, not ours. We are the body. He's the head. In John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, Jesus says, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. You know, a lot of times when we talk about discipleship, what we're really, really talking about is leadership training or mentoring. We are disciples of Jesus alone. I'm not called to make disciples of Dan. If I have the privilege of mentoring a young man, I'm not trying to get him to follow me. I'm trying to teach him that Jesus is the best teacher. And how do, how do we orient our lives in this busy and crazy and loud culture to be silent before Jesus and hear his voice and be changed by him and become like him? That's what's lacking in our world today. Men and women who sit in the presence of Jesus Christ. And then when they go out in the world, people say, I, I don't know what this person's about. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know something is different. Like the disciples, what did, what did the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers say? These unlearned men, they don't have the, the degrees that we have, but it's obvious that they've been with Jesus. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. That was only one verse. I'm sorry. Let's keep going here. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God. So here he is in a Roman prison cell just picture a dungeon and you're probably pretty close. And what is he doing? I thank God. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, meaning no strings attached. I did it because I love him. I serve him with a pure conscience. As my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. And I don't think he's being facetious when he says night because I don't think he was getting a lot of sleep in this prison cell. 
So when he was up late at night, I imagine he was praying. What do you do when you're up late at night? When you wake up and you can't fall back to sleep. Or you lay in bed and you're just like, man, I know I got to go to sleep. And, and the more you think about how badly you need to go to sleep, the less you can sleep. So an hour goes by and two hours go by and you're counting down the time that you need have left to sleep before you wake up. If I fall asleep now, then I'll get at least four hours and then three hours. You know what I do? I usually worry. I think about my kids. Oh, they're growing up too fast. Those are the moments that are kind of overwhelming when it's all quiet and you think about how life is moving so quickly by. Start thinking about your family and your parents and the people you love. All the things that are going on. Think about work. You worry about relationships. You worry about the finances. Man, the war for our thought life is fierce. But what does Scripture say? Take every thought into captivity for the sake of Christ. Paul used that time we see to pray. In this moment, in this chapter of his life, he couldn't preach. He couldn't teach. At least teach the crowds. He could write. But he didn't have that same platform that he used to have when he went from town to town. But in those late hours, he could pray. And that's exactly what he did. He would pray. And Timothy was on his mind. He says, my prayers for you. Pray for you night and day. Verse 4, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. I personally think, and many commentators suggest, that he's talking about those tears that Timothy cried the last time they were together and Paul left. I think those are the tears that Paul remembers. I'm being mindful of your tears. That I may be filled with joy, he says in verse 5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also. I may be filled with joy, Paul says. So my question as I went through this, okay, what made Paul the kind of man who is finishing his life well, but finds himself in prison and he's not complaining? He's not asking God, what did I do wrong? Instead, he's saying, um, I want my joy to be filled, knowing, Timothy, that you are continue, continuing to be obedient to the Lord. What, why? What, what gave Paul that kind of heart? He was still a man. And I think there's a hint here. See, Paul wasn't sophisticated in speech. He wasn't an attractive man. He had weepy eyes and a crooked nose, we learn from Scripture. It wasn't his likability factor. He could be kind of brash sometimes. But it's this simple truth. He shared the mind and heart of Jesus. What Jesus loved and cared about, we see that 
lived out through Paul. And again, it's because he spent time with him. He knew his voice. My sheep, Jesus said, know my voice. If there was something that brought God joy, it brought joy to Paul. If there was something that broke God's heart, it broke Paul's heart. You see God's desire to seek and save the lost through Paul. Paul said at one point, I would even sacrifice my own salvation if it meant my brothers would come to know Christ. And that wasn't a low view of his salvation. That was a high view of Paul's desire to see his brothers come to know Christ. Timothy, he says, when I think about your faith, it brings me joy because it brings God joy. The most effective believers are the ones that share God's heart and mind. Not the most gifted, not the most articulate, not the most educated, not the most charismatic, not the best looking, not the best singers, not any of those superficial things. But don't worry, if you're attractive, God can still use you. The main thing is, do you share his heart? Are you allowing him to constantly burn away the things of this world and stir up the things of him? Are you allowing him to replace your desires with his desires? See, all too often we find ourselves with desires that war against God's. And we feel that war. We didn't know about that war until we became born again, and that's when that war was awakened in us. And we're like Paul saying, I'm doing the things I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I'm finding myself practicing those things. And finally, that bothers us. That's a good place to be, because I I don't know about you, before I came to know Christ, that didn't bother me at all. But now that war exists within us, and we need to stop feeding those selfish desires because the more we feed them, the more they grow. But every time we say no to one of those desires, we're giving God an opportunity to replace that desire with Him and His desires. What does He say? Do not worry, but instead replace that worry with what? With prayer. Jesus told us during the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Blessed are those who desire to see God's right and good kingdom lived out through His body because those are the people that will be filled. If you feel like you're chasing your tail in this world, and you're constantly going after things that hoping they'll bring some type of value and fulfillment to life, and maybe there's some momentary gratification, but after that you're left searching for something else. I don't think you're going after the right things. Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then you will be filled. See, we don't need a change in behavior in the church. We need a change in appetite. We need a change in our desires. And the only way that can happen is sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
studying His living Word, using our gifts as we gather with one another and build one another up. Look at verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verse 6. He says, I remind you, stir up. That, that Greek word stir up, it means fan the flame. It means move that, those, those coals around and get that heat going. Get that fire stoked. I remind you, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And if you remember what that gift was, it was in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, which is studying the word of God, to exhortation, which is preaching the word of God, and to doctrine, which is right teaching. And you guessed it, the word of God. These are your gifts, Timothy. Stir these up. Study the Word. Preach the Word. Teach the Word. Not just in Word, but by the way you live. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. This gift of pastoral leadership. This gift of shepherding. Paul says, grow it. That tells me Timothy is struggling. That tells me there's something that is holding Timothy back from being the shepherd that Paul knows God created him to be. What could that be? Well, in 1 and 2 Timothy, more than 25 times, Paul tells Timothy, be bold. Timothy, be bold. Stand up, be strong, be willing to confront issues that threaten the gospel. See, Timothy, and this is just what I gather from Paul's letters to Timothy, he seemed to have a love for others and a deep concern for others. But what he was still learning was that true love also confronts tough issues. It's not love if it's not coupled with truth. See, I, and again, I, I understand this. Some of you are people pleasers, and I wrestle with that. Some of you love others well. You care about others, but what the enemy loves to do is take your care and concern for others and twist it into caring too much about what they think of you. You can't have it both ways. You have to die to that idea of well, what are they going to think if you're truly going to care for somebody else. Because sometimes caring is saying something that is just not going to be received well. You and I will never really care for someone if we care about what they think of us. It's impossible. And I, I know, and I, and I again... I'm a re recovering people pleaser here, so I get this. But some of you are so paralyzed this morning by what people think of you. Be free of that. Die to that today. 
And then you'll have to die to it tomorrow, and you'll have to die to it to the next day. But die to that. Who cares what people think of you? What matters is what they think of Jesus. It's understandable. Timothy didn't want to alienate people. Now, understand what I'm saying here. It, Timothy didn't want to offend just for the sake of offending. He didn't want to alienate people. He wanted to keep the peace. He wanted to keep unity within the body. But there are times when people take that option away from us. And we have to confront the lie. And that's required of a shepherd. And see, Paul was so good at this. There was no question which side he stood on, right? It didn't matter if you were his friend or if you were family. He stood on the side of the gospel. He stood on the side of what is loving and true. It didn't matter what position you held. It didn't matter if you were a king or a prince or a, a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. That didn't matter to him. It didn't matter if you were one of the fellow apostles. Because there was a time where Peter had to be confronted. Where God had opened the door wide to Gentile believers. And there were many Jews that were not comfortable with it. And Peter, he would eat with the Gentiles, but as soon as some of the, the born-again Jews came from Jerusalem and they had some authority, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. And what does Paul do? Paul said, I confronted him to his face. And he said, this is not the gospel that we are teaching. Your behavior is getting in the way of people seeing the gospel. That was his concern, to protect it. Protect the word of the gospel and the lifestyle of the gospel. Now, let me, let me just real quick give a counterbalance. Timothy needed to hear this from Paul. Be bold. There are some that need to hear Maybe a different encouragement. You have no problem being bold. You have no problem telling someone what they need to hear. In fact, you might have a hard time just closing your mouth sometimes. And maybe what we need to hear this morning is, whenever possible, make peace with all men. Or season your speech with salt. Love covers a multitude of sins. See, stirring up our gifts means something different for different people. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same personality. Some of us need more boldness, and some of us need more grace in our lives. And if you're the one that's like, oh, I'm so afraid I'm going to be too bold, you're probably not the one that's too bold. And if you're the one that's like, oh, man, I can't be too loving... Trust me, you need to grow in love. Look at verse 7. Can we read this together? 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. That felt kind of Lutheran. Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. This is Paul, Paul's encouragement to Timothy. First, he says, Timothy, understand where fear comes from. It's not coming from God. Fear is what keeps us from praying for the sick. Does God heal everyone that we pray for? Not in this life. But what does the Bible tell us to do with the sick? We lay hands and we pray. And we pray in faith. And then we let God do what he wants to do. Fear is what keeps us from sharing our faith. Think of someone right now that you just have a burden for, that you know is not walking with Jesus, doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. They're lost, and you love them deeply, and they're in the cycle of just self-destruction. And you know if they would just relent and give their life to Christ, it would change absolutely everything. Think about that person for a moment. Now think about calling them after you leave here today and telling them about the love of Christ. And I'm not commanding you to do anything, but what feelings did that bring up? When you start to think about actually having that conversation with them, for many of us, it's fear. It, it, it brings us a little bit of uh, anxiety and stress and, oh, what will they think? And sometimes it's not even, what will they think of me? What if I misrepresent God? God has not given us that spirit. Again, Paul's telling Timothy, first to understand boldness, you need to understand that this fear that prevents you from living out the truth of the gospel is not coming from God. This fear that keeps us from stepping up and serving and teaching or a fear of confessing our sin to someone who we trust. Laying it out, being open, being vulnerable, saying, hey, I am in bondage to this thing and I can't do this alone. And scripture says if I confess my sin one to another, he is faithful to forgive that sin. And I've been fighting this battle alone and I need to tell you, because I need a brother or sister to come alongside me and pray. And just that, those words freak you out. That fear is not from the Lord. Fear is what keeps us up, keeps us from speaking to a friend who is going down a road that we know is going to lead to destruction because we don't want to offend. All of this, we have to understand these fears are not from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear. If something is paralyzing us from doing God's will, we need to acknowledge where it's coming from. There is a spiritual war going on, and if we are buying into our fears, we are buying into the enemy. It's the first step in overcoming these fears God isn't the source of them. The second step 
is understand, understanding what he has given us. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power. Miraculous power, that means. Miraculous strength. Now, when you think of the miraculous power of God, where does your mind go right now? Where does your mind go? That someone who can't walk getting up and walking and dancing, the blind seeing, healings. I know you guys, you're not thinking of gold coming from the ceilings and all that stuff. But we think of these miraculous displays of, of God's might, these signs and wonders. But you know what I think of now when I think of miraculous strength? I think of a husband and wife that have been married for 50 plus years and they still love each other and they still enjoy being around each other. I think of a pastor who faithfully has fed his flock for decades and is running the race faithfully. I think of those who serve the little ones for years without a pat on the back. I think of many of you who have walked through tragedy and hurt and you would admit it this life has been very difficult but you love Jesus and you haven't lost your faith I think of those of you who have walked away from addiction and it's a lifelong struggle and those feelings still come up but your love for Jesus outweighs your love for the drugs or the alcohol or whatever that may be the older I get, the more I love faithfulness because I want it in my own life. Those miraculous works, they're awesome in a moment, but what about a lifetime? It's only something Jesus can do. So that's the power. And love, if power comes first, which I think is vitally important, and it has to be coupled with love because worldly power seeks to control others. Godly power is used for the sake of others. Power coupled with selfless love for the lost. Not strength to control, but strength to serve. In John 13, 3, many of you know this story. Jesus got down in his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet, and then he told them, you know what I've done for you, you go and do likewise. Meaning, I have taken the role of a servant, you go and serve. But before that, in John 13, 3, we read that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus had all the power in the world. And what did he do with it? He served. Power, love, and a clear mind, a sound mind, a mind of peace and calm, a mind that is rooted in truth, and a mind that is centered on Christ. All right, look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Again, there's that, that heart for Timothy, who may be kind of cowering now, 
that the persecution in Eastern Asia has increased, he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. If you would, jump down with me to verse 15. Oh, I'm sorry, jump down with me, yeah, to verse 15. Because this is this, this human heart of Paul. And he looks around and he sees that he's been abandoned, essentially. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And then in verse 15, this you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Among those are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus. Onesphorus? For he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously, and he found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me in Ephesus. Paul was abandoned. And why did they abandon him? Let me tell you this. The prosperity gospel is nothing new. I think the prosperity gospel is probably one of the biggest dangers to the American church today. It's a gospel that's all about what God can do for me. It's a spiritual answer to our greed. We can balance our spirituality so that we can silence our conscience and still get everything we think we want from this life. And there's these broken ideas in that prosperity gospel that with enough faith, you can speak something into existence. That you are a little God. And of course, we don't want to suffer. We don't like pain. We don't like sickness. And all of those things are because of sin, and Christ died for those things. So in a believer's life with enough faith, there is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no suffering. It is only prosperity. And that is why Paul was abandoned. Because how could God really be using a man who is now in prison? How could that be a good God? How could a, a God who is all-powerful let Paul, who has served him, spend the rest of his life in chains and ultimately be executed? There are people that were spreading that lie. Paul couldn't be in the Lord's will if he was in prison. How could God allow him to suffer like that? And Paul tells Timothy, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. He says, my suffering is God's will. It's part of God's plan. And Timothy, I invite you to join me in the suffering. Not necessarily come and sit with him in jail, but be willing, Timothy, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That kind of teaching would not fly today. Well, I guess it is flying. It's flying right now. But think about that for a moment. 
It's share my wealth, share my prosperity, sow into my ministry and reap the rewards. It's the religious version of multi-level marketing. And the only people getting richer are the ones at the top. And there's some semblance of righteousness, but it has no eternal value. But Paul says, no, following Christ means we will suffer. And I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. Timothy, you also be ready to suffer. And part of that suffering is the pain the flesh feels when we're bold, when we step out in faith, when we deny ourselves and follow him. Are we willing to suffer on that level? Jesus, I'm not going to meet every one of my needs. I'm not going to say the yes to everything I want, even though my culture tells me that's where life is found. I just want to say yes to you. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day I trust the Lord. Paul says in verse 13, we'll close, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing, the word there that Paul uses is that good deposit, that treasure that's been implanted in you which was committed to you, keep it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Remain faithful, Timothy, to the truth. And there will be a price to be paid, but that price is worth it. There will be opposing forces that try to pry it away from you. There will be distractions. There will be things in life that seem far more important to the gospel, more important than the gospel. But don't be tempted. Don't compromise. Usually because we are afraid. We're afraid of our culture. We're afraid of our peers. That paralyzes us. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. 